0: We are along the road parallel 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Major Charles Whittlesey, Commander, 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry Regiment, 77th Division, American Expeditionary Forces, charleveaux Ravine, October 4th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 73, The Lost Battalion, part 3, Friendly Fire. Let's kick it off, as always, with some admin notes. Patreon shout out to Steve on this episode. Thank you for signing up to support the show. And Patreon pitch time. As... Patrons on Patreon, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. Patrons currently have access to an episode on the battle for FEME and Fimet in the summer of 1918. And as patrons requested, we are working our way through the Battle of Tannenberg. After this episode is written, the plan is to work on the next Tannenberg episode. Plans for an episode or two on the little-covered 1918 Battle of Soissons are in the thoughts-in-my-head phase. And so we're going to get there as well. If this, any of this, sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com forward slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as $1 per episode, and your support is greatly appreciated. Your support has great value as well. Just as an example, I may have spoken about this before, but with patron support, I was able to purchase a digital subscription to the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceedings Journal last year. With that, I was able to have access to German Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Otto's book, The Battle at Mont*. That book made a huge contribution to the four episodes that we did on Mont last year. Um, and I got a digital subscription rather than look for a book. Um, hard copies of that particular book are hard to find. And the cheapest I've seen them run for was $140 uh, US. So digital subscription, that was made possible by patron support. So thank you very much. And that is it for admin. And now back to the MERS are It was now October 4th, 1918. Across the entire Mursargon Front, the American 1st Army had rested and refitted as best it could after the first five days of merciless combat. In 1st Corps' sector, the 1st Division had replaced the shattered 35th Division. In 5th Corps, the battle-tested 3rd and 32nd Divisions had taken over from the Green 91st, 37th, and 79th Divisions. In 3rd Corps' lines on the Army's right, the 4th, 80th, and 33rd Divisions remained in place. Now, on the 4th, the whole Army front was to erupt in attack once again. 1st Corps was to continue its mission to clear out the Aragon Forest. German artillery along the eastern edge of the forest was to become a particular focus for the 28th and 1st Divisions, for it needed to be eliminated to suite 5th Corps would make the main drive by attacking towards the Romagna Heights. On the right, 3rd Corps would strike for the Cunell Heights. Marshal Foch wanted to open up stronger attacks on the east bank of the Meuse to destroy German artillery emplacements there, but... American Commander General John Pershing delayed those operations for now. That morning, the skies over the front line flashed with unnatural lightning. Hundreds of American guns launched shell after shell at their German targets. On 1st Army's extreme left flank, the morning opened just as every other morning since the 26th of September, with a barrage hitting the German positions. Yet again, what remained of the 308th and 307th Infantry Regiments were attacking up the Havan d'Argonne. But hills 205 and 198, respectively on the left and right of the northern end of the Havan d'Argonne, were simply too packed with belts of barbed wire and defending Germans. The Doughboys threw themselves at those hills again and again. Companies D and F, now each numbering around 90 exhausted men, attacked four separate times. Any breaks in the wire made by the ultimately ineffective barrage were sealed by German counterattacks. The strain was showing amongst U.S. troops, although in one instance it led to a local success. Company K-308th Infantry 1st Sergeant Benjamin Kaufman was leading a group of men in support of Lieutenant Knight and his company's D&F attacks when he and his men were hit by fire from a machine gun nest hidden in the deep brush up ahead. Two men up front were hit, and the rest instantly dropped for safety. Kaufman tried to outflank the gun, but the German crew anticipated his moves and pinned him down with more fire. The resourceful first sergeant then got his men in place where he wanted them and ran straight for the gun nest armed with grenades. He had just started his run when machine gun fire came his way and a bullet smashed into his right arm. Now Kaufman was pissed off. While his men stayed down, he rushed towards the gun in an incandescent rage, throwing grenades with his left hand as he advanced. The grenades found their mark exploding in the woods up ahead as he neared the spot. Reaching the position, Kaufman found only one German left alive. Aiming an empty pistol at the man, he ordered the German to pick up the machine gun and get marching. First Sergeant Kaufman then force-marched the man and his machine gun back to the American-held bunkers at La Mort, where Kaufman promptly passed out. Benjamin Kaufman would later earn the Medal of Honor for his fury-induced bravery. Despite Top Kaufman's act, and doubtless others that went unrecorded, all of the American attacks ultimately stopped cold before the enemy lines that morning in the Argonne. Brigadier General Evan Johnson, commanding 154th Brigade, 77th Division, quickly put afternoon attack plans in place. The targets were the same, Hills 198 and 205, and both would be soaked with artillery yet again. Johnson added a second job for the gunners this time. Major Whittlesey and his officers in the pocket were sending carrier pigeons back, and one had come from the major himself just at mid morning. Whittlesey had a desperate tone in this latest note Quote, Still surrounded, being heavily trench-mortared, needing support, end quote. Johnson thought that as the artillery would be shelling Hill 198, and this hill was basically on Whittlesey's southern perimeter, they should also give some help on Whittlesey's northern perimeter as well. Johnson ordered the artillery to hit along a line designated by a young lieutenant on the ground as 294.2 by 276.4. There were other coordinates. The day prior, two pigeons had come back from the pocket, one of them from Whittlesey. The messages related to incoming German artillery that needed addressing. Whittlesey's message read, At 294.6-276.3, hour, 8.50 a.m. We are being shelled by German artillery. Can we not have artillery support? Fire is coming from northwest. End quote. Just after that pigeon went out, a field artillery lieutenant named J.P. Teichmuller sent out a pigeon of his own. Quote, from J.P. Teichmuller, Liaison Officer, 305th Field Artillery, at 294.8-275.6, hour, 9 a.m., to Commanding Officer, 305th Field Artillery. We are being shelled at this point. Cadence one per minute. Caliber meanin seven seven high explosive. Fire Northwest. Give us artillery. Work quickly. Teichmoller. End quote. The difference between those coordinates was unimaginably important. Whittlesey and Teichmuller gave vertical coordinates of 294.6 and 294.8, which is fairly close. But Whittlesey gave his horizontal as 276.3, while the green Teichmuller gave his horizontals as 275.6. Rob Laplander believes that Teichmuller unfortunately switched the last two digits. Understandable since Teichmuller had been on the job for two days and was under shellfire when he wrote the message. But those coordinates put the two surrounded battalions 800 meters to the south of where they actually were. Of course, it was an error that would contribute to great consequences for the surrounded men in the Charlevoix Ravine. The morning of October 4th dawned almost positively from Major Whittlesey and his men in the pocket. The night had been fairly quiet, and for what seemed like since forever there had been no rain, so most everyone was able to get some sleep, even out in the open. The Major was up and about in the early morning, organizing patrols to try to reconnect with the rear and his flanks. He continued to follow his orders, part of which was to establish contact with his flanks. A patrol sent to Hill 198 soon came back. The hill was crawling with Germans. Patrols off the right flank seemed promising as they found no Germans out that way. Maybe they were pulling back like they had done on La Mort. As the patrols went out, Whittlesey sent out a pigeon with another concerned message. They had received what they knew to be friendly fire the night before from the American artillery. For the most part, the doughboys in the pocket stayed low in their holes, digging deeper when they could, staying out of sight as much as possible. To their south, they could hear the unmistakable sounds of heavy fighting. In the center of the perimeter, the wounded were really suffering. There were no more medical supplies, and the medics were trying to be as creative and caring as they could be. Some of the wounded had already died, and Whittlesey ordered their immediate burial as best as could be managed. The dead needed to be buried for hygiene, but also for morale reasons. Things were grim and becoming ever more so. The men hadn't had regular meals for days since the beginning of the offensive, and they were now on their second or third day without food. Some water could be had with the rain, because the brook on the ravine floor was ruthlessly covered by German snipers. Whittlesey and the officers only designated a few men to sneak down to the brook to fill canteens, guys who were particularly fast. They were trying to keep the casualties down. Whittlesey was strict on burying the dead, and he was also strict on the use of latrine trenches he had ordered dug inside the perimeter. Woe to the man caught relieving himself by him. Although, as their encirclement lengthened, this became increasingly harder to do. Especially when the Germans were strafing the hillside. The only thing a doughboy could really do was relieve himself in his foxhole. In the early afternoon, things went quiet in the Charlevoix Ravine. Even the Germans seemed to take a late lunch break or a siesta. The trench mortar on Hill 205 and the surrounding machine guns all went silent. So that quiet allowed the men to hear the telltale crump of American guns to the south, signaling the beginning of another barrage and yet another attack meant to relieve them. It wasn't long before it was confirmed as shells began to whistle and scream towards Hill 198. Then, the chest-thumping impacts and the roar of explosions as the top of that damned hill burst from one end to the other. The guns were on target this time, and a cruel rain of shells pounded and tore at the hilltop. Then the barrage began to walk its way down the hillside to the northern foot of Hill 198, where the Germans had part of their perimeter surrounding the southern end of the pocket. There was some cheering and clapping, from the hunkered-down Americans. Finally, the Germans were getting a portion of their due. Officers worked to quiet the men down. By saying a barrage walks, we're saying that the gunners would adjust the angle of their guns by so many degrees to change the range. You fire at a certain line on the map, then adjust and fire at a new line, say 10 or 100 meters up from that on the ground the shells seemed to walk across the earth they're torturing this is what began to happen after pounding the northern foot of hill 198 the american guns adjusted their range 10 meters up a rain of shells hit the floor of the charlevoix ravine sending geysers of mud and water into the air the ground trembled under the impacts the doughboys weren't too concerned Artillery was an area weapon, after all. Then the guns adjusted again, and the outpost line on the south side of the pocket was hit. Any cheers or smiles were gone now, replaced by what had to be, in some cases, a refusal to believe what they were seeing and what their primal instincts were telling them deep down. A line of American shells screamed down into the ravine, and slammed into the perimeter of the pocket. No, 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 no. This is wrong. This is bad. This is... The next salvo of shells came down dead square inside the pocket, across the left flank and much of the hillside. The world exploded as earth, men, pieces of men, and equipment went flying into the air before crashing back down. As soon as the first shell slammed into the surrounded Americans, another round of shells came in. This time, they didn't adjust. The firing line stayed right there, in the pocket. The barrage came plowing its way down the hill directly towards us, Private John Nell of G Company later wrote. It blew dirt high in the air as it moved on across the valley. There was absolutely nothing we could do. We just had to take what came knowing without a doubt that it was our own artillery. It stopped right on our position and continued well over an hour. Everyone was expecting the next shell to get him. There were many direct hits blowing men to pieces and wounding dozens more, and this shelling blasted away a good part of our bushes and timber, making it easier for us to be seen by the enemy. The American bombardment was deadly accurate this time and effective, shell after shell landed inside amongst the terrified American position, killing and wounding American soldiers. Private Emil Peterson of Company H recalled, quote, the big shells would burst among us, and this made some of the boys hunt for better cover. One came running up and lay in the hole next to me. When I told him that the Germans must have moved some of their artillery in the back of us, he informed me that it was our own artillery shelling us. Soon a shell came and destroyed his cartridge belt, which he had laid outside his hole. That made him move in a hurry. End quote. It wasn't long before the Germans on the surrounding hills realized what was happening. The Americans were hitting their own men. To them, it was a godsend, and they took advantage. German machine guns began strafing the position from one end to the other. The trench mortar on Hill 205 came back to life. Even grenades sailed into the pocket. How anyone survived is a testament to the deepening foxholes the men had been constantly improving. How anyone could move amongst that rain of shot and shell is a testament to incredible courage and a conscious suppression of the logical move to hug the ground and not move. But men were up and moving. Major Charles Whittlesey, now hunched over as impacting artillery rocked the ground, walked through the perimeter. His being hunched over was the only indication that he was at all distressed by the screaming danger around him. Take it easy, take it easy. Whittlesey told his men as he moved amongst them. This cannot last long. Stay calm. They shall realize their mistake any time now. But ten minutes went by, and there was no stop to the bombardment. Twenty minutes. In the area of the wounded, Private Jack Garris had just dragged in a wounded man when a shell smashed into the middle of the mass of men. Lightning burst before his eyes, and then everything went dark. When Garrus dug himself out, he opened his eyes to a scene of horror. The wounded collection point had been wiped out, along with most of the poor souls who'd been inside it. Whittlesey now worked to get a pigeon out. It was all he could do. Working with Private Ulmer Richards, one of the pigeon carriers, who had just two birds left, the Major furiously wrote the famous message. Quote, We are along the road parallel 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. End quote. Whittlesey was heard to yell in the roar, This is our only hope. Get it out right away. But as Private Richards ready to bird, a shell exploded close by. Richards accidentally opened his hands, and the bird was up and out of there in no time. The young private, despite the chaos bursting around him, apologized to Major Whittlesey. Richards pulled out his last bird, and this is the one that would become a legend, because this was none other than Cher Ami, a veteran of the I-kid-you-not 1st Pigeon Division of the U.S. Army's Signal Corps. This time, Richards held on to the bird tightly and clipped the little aluminum tube containing Whittlesey's message to his leg. We have to quote from Rob Laplanders finding the lost battalion to get the full story. Quote, Private Richards thrust Cher in the air and the bird flew up, but then only circled around two or three times in the eddies created by the shell blasts before landing again slightly farther down the hill in what remained of a shrapnel-twisted tree. There he perched, with all eyes below fixed on the errant, frightened pigeon on which so much depended. Turning to Private Richards, the Major exclaimed excitedly above the blasts, Can't you do something? Richards picked up a stick and tossed it up. Hey! Hey! Go on there! He yelled, and quickly Major Whittlesey and several others joined in, Jeremy, however, simply jumped up to a higher branch and remained fixed, too frightened to fly. Obviously, something had to be done, and quickly. Making up his mind, for better or worse, Private Richards swore heartily, and then suddenly jumped up, darted down the hill and began to shimmy up the tree, shaking it as he went. All around him, the shells continued to scream down, and bullets pinked the bark by his hands. Above him, Cher remained firmly on his branch, preening his feathers in fear and eyeing Richards with cocked head. Come on, you goddamn bird, he yelled into the roar. Fly! Richards climbed still farther up the tree until at last he could reach the branch, shook it firmly, and finally Cher took off, circled around a couple times again to get his bearings, and then headed back over the ravine in the direction of the 77th's main line. Gaining height as he went. Below, a hundred open mouthed faces followed his line of flight. A few feeble cheers, muffled by the explosions, went up around him as Omer Richards dropped down from the tree, miraculously unhurt, and scampered back up the hill. Major Whittlesey, Private Larney, Corporal Baldwin, and Sergeant Major Gadeke were all ready halfway down the hill by the time Private Richards dropped into a hole next to the Battalion PC Funk. Suddenly, there was an explosion, and half the Battalion PC Funk hole next to him disappeared into a shell crater. Richards, although covered by dirt, went untouched and was down the hill and in another hole nearer the bottom in nothing flat. Rifles cracked from the German lines as Cher winged his way back across the ravine, rising at height with every foot of forward progress. The enemy knew well what that bird was for and meant to stop it. Private Fred Everman of Company B watched Cher take off and head out. And then... A shell exploded directly below the bird, killing five of our men and stunning the pigeon so that it fluttered to the ground midway between the spring and the bridge we crossed to get into the pocket. That last pigeon, the last hope, The last means of communication appeared to have failed his final mission, and the shelling went on, end quote. The rain of shells kept coming down. Whittlesey decided to act on the limping Captain McMurtry's advice to shift the left flank in some so those men could avoid the worst of the friendly fire. The Major ordered Sergeant Major Ben Gadeke and Corporal Walter Baldwin to go out and give the news of the line shift. They set off, and Baldwin later recalled, We started along the slope, about ten feet apart, with Ben in front. We had gone only a little way when there came a blinding flash and a terrific roar, and everything went black in a cloud of dirt thrown up by the shell. Ben had been at the exact spot where the shell burst. He disappeared as completely as the flame of a candle you would blow out. We never found any part of his body nor even a piece of his uniform, End quote. In the storm of fire, the men in the pocket suddenly heard a plane fly overhead. It was an American plane, a big DH-4, coming in at barely a thousand feet over Charlevoix Ravine. Whittlesey ordered Private Jim Larney to display the signal panels on whatever open ground he could find, over in Company G's sector, Lieutenant Red Cullen ordered Private Joseph Shantz to crawl out into the open with a white towel and try to get the plane's attention. Shantz lay on his back on the ground, pulling the white towel desperately over his chest in an effort to catch the flyboys' sight. Neither Larney nor Shantz were successful as the plane flew on towards the west and did not return. The Germans, however, noticed Shantz and began lighting up his open area with streams of machine gun fire. Shans then flew back to his foxhole. Behind American lines, a field artillery lieutenant came to the 308th Regiment's headquarters to report on the afternoon barrage dropped north of Whittlesey's position out ahead. Captain Bradley Delahunty, the unit intelligence officer, had heard nothing about a barrage to help Whittlesey out, but, hey, There was a lot going on. Back to finding the lost battalion. Quote, Delahunty asked casually, Where's your line of fire? Lieutenant Hadamer unfolded his map and pointed out a line along the far slope of the Charlevoix Ravine. Right along this line here, where the Bosch must be, he said. Captain Delahunty and Colonel Stacy both started in shock and then looked directly at Lieutenant Hadamer dumbfounded. "'Those are the coordinates of Whittlesey's position,' Colonel Stacy exclaimed. "'Good God, man, support them!' Captain Delahanty cried. "'You're firing to destroy them. That's exactly the line Whittlesey is occupying.' Hadamer stared horror-struck at the map. "'Are, are, are you sure?' he asked anxiously. But Captain Delahanty was already yelling into the phone, desperately trying to get connected through to the 152nd Field Artillery PC.' Lieutenant Teichmuller's error had borne deadly fruit. At just about the same time, a certain pigeon, now missing an eye and with a hole in its chest, landed back at its home loft. A corporal pulled the message from the tube, read it, and then ran for the telephone. The major, who answered the phone, was so horrified by the contents that he had the corporal it in plain English, forgoing the codes they were supposed to use. Within minutes, a motorcycle runner was physically carrying Whittlesey's message to that major, who was on the phone, screaming at the artillery for it to stop. He was too late, but as the artillery headquarters told him, they had just finished firing their barrage fire anyway. There are two events that no survivor of the lost battalion could ever be convinced of otherwise, and these are two events that happened on October 4th. One was that Sergeant Major Ben Gadeke had been obliterated by an American shell. This was not the case. Nearly unbelievably, Gadeke would die of terrible wounds in a German hospital in Boussensy the next day. As he would be captured on account of his rank stripes, the remains of the young, handsome Sergeant Major would not be found until sometime in 1919. Sergeant Major Ben Gadecki rests eternally at the Meurs-Argonne American Cemetery in Romagna su Montfaucon today. The second event that most lost battalion men went to their graves believing was that Ami had. In the end, save them all. The plucky bird had made it through the firestorm and faithfully delivered its message. Decades later, former Lieutenant Sherman Eager of Company G would be visiting the now stuffed and preserved Cher Ami at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., where he is on display this day. Eager would turn to his family and tell them all they were standing there at that moment because that bird had saved his life. Around four o'clock that terrible afternoon, the shelling began to lessen and then it died off completely. The Germans ended their machine gun and mortar fire as well. In the shell shattered American position, the doughboys sat stunned. The survivors were surrounded by smoking shell craters from the last hits. The barrage had now stripped away much of the brush and other cover from the position, and trees stood naked and limbless. There were bodies of the dead, bodies of the previously buried, and worse, pieces of them everywhere amongst the living. At the blasted hole where the wounded had been, the surviving members of the medical team had built a low wall of corpses on the ravine floor to shield the remaining wounded men. Wounded men began to scream. They had survived the bombardment by their own guns. It couldn't possibly get any worse now. Except that it did, of course. The Germans began firing their machine guns, targeting anyone who got out of their holes Within minutes, the machine gun fire came from all around the pocket, forcing everyone to stay down. Then, grenades started flying into the hillside. The Germans were not going to let this opportunity pass them by. It was time to wipe out the nest of Americans while they were still down. After the grenades came the sound of boots stomping through the trees around them. The Germans were attacking. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at VerdunPodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at one podcast Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.